0: From WPVM LP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Jonathan Ammons.
1: And I'm Lexi Harvey. And this is Big Peag. He's
2: pouring gasoline Two steps ahead of me I told him, baby, please Come set it all alight You know to set the scene
1: Go-to comfort food. Maybe it's a grilled cheese and tomato soup on a chilly fall day, or biting into a juicy burger at your favorite bar. Maybe you're more of the type to bring the whole pint of ice cream to the couch while the opening credits are still rolling, like myself. Whatever your favorite comfort food, there's likely a story behind where it came from, a story that many of us might not even think about or a story that takes some digging to find. But as Illinois writer Christine Venzen finds out, those roots tend to run deep and often connect to our loved ones throughout our lives.
3: When I was in grade school, lunch was the best part of the day. Mom's peanut butter and jelly sandwiches were love letters from home, a respite between the ordeals of gym class and arithmetic. As an afternoon snack, graham crackers swelled like pillows in a cup of hot, sweetened coffee softening the blows of the day. This was the first time I truly appreciated the experience of comfort food. I came by it honestly. Growing up in Italy, my mom tells me, she got the same feeling from soaking day-old bread in cafe latte. Even better were the scrapings of polenta off the bottom of the pan. Her mother would soak the pan overnight in milk. By morning, the crust of cornmeal mush, softened into porridge and sprinkled with sugar— made a fine breakfast. Like my father, my mother grew up in a small family farm in an alpine village called Arce. Raising cows, chickens, and a few goats for milk, meat, and eggs, plus hay and corn for feedstuffs, they knew food up close and personal. As two world wars ravaged the northern Italian countryside and left the economy in shambles, prospects off the farm were limited to hotel maid and gondolier. My father emigrated to the United States in 1938 after they married, my mother 10 years later. They didn't bring much material goods, but were loaded with the generation's agricultural lore. My dad cultivated grape vines that produced gallons of home-bottled wine and quarts of homemade jelly. Until I started school, I didn't realize other people bought grape jelly in stores. My mother carried an unwritten heritage of traditional recipes. Big family gatherings called for homemade ravioli and capoletti, and our Christmas dinner was rolled round steak, a country cousin to the fancier braccioli. Steak smeared with minced garlic and hog-tied around sliced salt pork, served over homemade egg noodles. The summer I was 16, my parents returned to Arce to visit their families. They tried to get back every five years or so, even if it meant leaving my 19-year-old brother Mark and me in charge of the house. As kids, Mark and I shared a typical big brother-little sister relationship. He played Roadrunner to my wily Coyote, Bugs Bunny to my Elmer Fudd. He always beat me to the best chair for watching TV and needled me in a tantrum with name-calling and put-downs. As teenagers, we coexisted in Cold War detente, ignoring each other as much as possible. Looking back, we should have been closer. We were the tail end of six kids, the only ones still living at home. We were both homebodies at heart. Neither of us ran with the popular crowd at school. Neither of us took part in extracurriculars. The neighborhood kids were our friends by default. That summer, when my parents left for Italy, Mark took over our dad's one-man lawn care service and filled out the checks our parents left for the utilities and newspaper. I took care of the house, the garden, and the grocery shopping. I don't recall cooking much. We probably subsisted on breakfast cereal, sandwiches, and meals our mom had frozen for us. Of the garden, all I remember is the strawberry patch. It produced abundantly that June. Having free reign in the kitchen inspired me to try my hand at baking. Strawberry pie was a simple recipe, a family favorite. I whipped up a pie a week which Mark happily devoured. Likewise with bunt cakes and chocolate chip cookies, food became our ambassador. The kitchen table, our conference table, where we signed a peace treaty. The next year, Mark finished classes in auto mechanics at junior college. The economy was slumping badly in the mid-1980s, and Mark's only offer of a job came from our sister Eileen, who lived 800 miles away in Delaware. One of her friends was opening a garage and he needed a mechanic who was willing to work long hours for low wages. Mark didn't care to move that far away, to a place he'd never seen and where he knew exactly one person. But a guy had to leave home sometime. Compared to Italy, 800 miles was just down the road. Mark packed what little he owned in his 72 Mustang and traveled it. A Few years later, it was my turn. A horse lover since childhood, I returned from a summer course in horse and stable management in Kentucky, convinced that the track was my calling. But where I lived, amid the hog farms and cornfields of Illinois, horse racing was slightly less popular than spearfishing. The East Coast, on the other hand, was a hotbed of horse sports, and Eileen's friends still had connections from his days exercising thoroughbreds. That July, I went to visit Eileen and to make the rounds of area racing stables. My last day there, I got hired as a groom, an equine nanny. The next morning, I started work. Mark found me a car, Eileen gave me a spare bedroom, and at the age of 21, I was an instant, reluctant adult. Caring for racehorses can be exhilarating, especially when you're young and strong and a little naive but it's also socially isolating. It has its own arcane routines, tack and tackle and lingo. The workday runs from before dawn to mid-afternoon, six and seven days a week. When other people my age were going out for a dinner or a movie, I was going to bed. Coworkers on the track tended to be a motley crew. Fair Hills was a beautiful training center, sprawling over 350 acres in Northern Maryland. Horses galloped along rolling hills and wooded trails, as well as on a racetrack. Yet the work was still hard and dirty. Turnover rates were high. People might work two weeks, collect a paycheck, and then move on. Others showed up drunk or stoned, disappeared entirely. The next spring, I rented an apartment, the first of my own. It was a garden-level efficiency, i.e., a basement with a bathroom. By day, I looked out the only window at strangers' feet passing on the sidewalk outside. Night always fell early in that cave, which was just as well. I had to turn in around 10 o'clock to be at work by 5 the next morning. Its soul-saving grace was that it was in the same complex as Mark, though that wasn't exactly by design. I picked it for the same reasons he did. It was cheap and close to work, but neither of us minded that the other was just a three-minute walk away. And since the TV reception on my 13-inch black and white set was on par with that of a fallout shelter, Mark let me watch the horse races at his spacious and airy one-bedroom second-floor digs. Most major races are on Saturday afternoons, and the ones important enough to be televised run from late spring to early fall. Watching the races at Mark's apartment became a ritual that lasted throughout the summer, I would go over in mid-afternoon and start dinner. He would get back from the garage a little later, and we would watch the races together and feast. I'd brought a copy of the cookbook Mom had edited for the Peoria Italian American Society. It would become my Bible. Harvest meatloaf, spaghetti pie, and zesty baked chicken, tried and true recipes, my mom's own contributions. They carried with them the warmth and contentment of family dinners past, and were followed by desserts of our childhood. Rocky Road ice cream, Oreo cookies, and Nutella straight from the jar. We stuffed ourselves and talked into the night. Our taste in food was just a small part of what united us, and a longing for home cooking wasn't the only one we filled. After all those years living in the same house, It took 800 miles and hamburger casserole to learn how much we needed and cared for each other. Those Saturday dinners taught me that the real healing power of comfort food is its ability to comfort others when both comfort and food are shared. Do you remember that risotto mom used to make? Mark asked once. Of course I did a molten mound of rice capped with drifts of grated cheese, eaten in concentric circles as it cooled. It was Italian peasant food, Americanized. No saffron, no shaved truffles, no arborio rice. It was Mazzola corn oil, Hunt's tomato paste, and Campbell's chicken and rice soup. Only the cheese was gourmet. Every year, my grandfather sent a huge wheel of Asiago from his dairy cooperative in Arce. He would mail it in a cheesecloth bag inked with our name and address. Mom would melt slices of cheese for our snack, filling the kitchen with its pungent aroma. Mark and I would gnaw in thick chunks of rind like dogs with rawhide bones. I still have the recipe I asked Mom to send, written on a half page of a yellow legal pad with the note, You know I never measure my ingredients, so use your own judgment if you find it isn't up to your taste. Not likely. When your taste is for the love and comfort of home, every bite is perfection.
0: Sarah Legatsky reading Christine Vinson's Saturday Night a la Casa de Marco. You can find that story and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com.
1: is made possible by our underwriter. The Marketplace Restaurant, serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
0: Every city has its institution, and more often than not, they take the form of a diner stalwart restaurants that are passed on through generation after generation of greasy spoons and laminated paper menus, handed down to either family or staff so consistently that they never seem to close. To any regular of these spots, they never even seem to change. Always affordable, always friendly, always reliable, even if some of the staff and some of the menu items seem to shuffle off every decade or so, only to be replaced with something or someone that seems to have been there all along. In 1946, when Morris Brown and his brother converted an old Asheville service station into an eatery on Haywood Road, I doubt they anticipated that it would be around nearly 80 years later. But they passed the Tasty Diner on to a member of their staff, and they sold it to another member of their staff, and by 1989, when David Henson took it over after working there for years himself, it was a pillar of the West Asheville community. Still serving the same cheap burgers and biscuits, still open early and closing midday. So it was not without controversy when Henson decided to retire and the owner of a fine dining establishment on the same street bought it from Henson in 2016. But contrary to the backlash, the Admiral's owner, Jonathan Robinson, had no intention of fundamentally changing Tasty Diner. In fact, his goal was largely to preserve it. So much so that he kept most of the staff who still wanted their jobs and left most of the menu items intact, modifying some of the canned and packaged elements to be made from scratch and adding fried chicken to the menu. He also added a bar and expanded the hours to serve late night, but nevertheless, the old guard had their complaints. Robinson passed it to Zombra and Copper Crown owners Adam and Kate Banash, and the backlash continued, despite their primary modifications to the existing model being a mere upgrade in the hours open and a slight increase in the prices to keep up with whatever food costs were growing. To be clear about this, a burger at Tasty Diner in 2012 was around $6. When Robinson ran it, it was around $8, and it was substantially larger. But nevertheless, the grumbling continued. Eventually, Banash too decided to sell, which brings us up to Stephen Goff's purchase of the business. The former proprietor of neighborhood favorites like King James Public House and Ox Bar, even he has seen his fair share of backlash over the acquisition. Which begs the question, why take over the Tasty Diner in the first place? I caught up with Steve after a lunch service the other day on the smoking patio behind the diner. What made you want to take over Tasty?
4: Well... You know, I just, I, I love the history of any any kind of food-related history, city history, especially Asheville, just because I, I've loved Asheville so much. Like, Oxbar was in the space where Vincent Seer was. I wanted Oxbar because it was where Vincent Seer was. Right. You know, like, that is, like, that was at least 50% of what made me want that space, you know? Right. And the same with this, like, I wanted this space just because it's it's meant so much to the city for so long, and I, and I knew that... You know, it's going to be weird changing it up a little bit. But at the same time, you know, things evolve and grow with their city. And Tasty, it's not like I changed the, like, version from 1946. I changed the version from 2017. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) it hasn't even been a decade that it was like that, you know. So, you know, I just, I, I wanted this space because it just means so much to our city. And I wanted to make sure that I put something in there that felt representative to me. I'm, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, I'm, you know, I'm only one portion of the city, but it feels, I wanted something that feels representative of Ashvillians and, and like, you know, long-term local folks, you know, and something that can be like, I always love the highbrow, lowbrow combo, so I love that you can just come in and get a PBR and a, and a Berg, you know, or you can get some crazy thing off the menu, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I've actually kept most of our sandwiches pretty darn inexpensive, like, compared to what things cost now you know yeah. again going into the fact that one year ago fry oil costed20 dollars for a container and now it costs 50 yeah. you know that's that affects even greasy spoon food yeah, <laughs> you know, for sure. like and over doubling in the cost of fryer price fry, fry oil prices you know and yeah. then you know I'm extremely adamant about keeping everything living wage certified everywhere I am too and, and not overworking my staff as much as I can. I have been guilty of overworking my staff in the past before. I mean, I'm right there with them. But, you know, this time I want to, like, I want to make sure that one of our key tenets, our core belief in this restaurant is taking care of the people that make this restaurant run.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
4: And so that's why we have, like, you know, we opened September 2nd, 11 to 6, Thursday through Sunday, just because, you know, the neighborhood had been coming by asking me, people have been asking me. And I was like, you know what? Let's give them... Let's, let's, like, feed people something, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, never... It was really more of an extension of, like, pop-ups and things we'd done, you know? So it was, like, never intended that breakfast isn't coming. You know what I'm saying? Right. Breakfast is on our list. Hardcore. Don't worry about that. And it's going to be... You know, breakfast is going to be far more casual than, than even what we have at lunch, which isn't even that crazy. But, you know, it's, you know, it's not your typical diner food yeah um but you know breakfast will be you know you know we're gonna and all day we're gonna offer bodega sandwiches so that like for me i just always loved in a city or like anywhere i've lived that i can just walk up to a walk-up window grab a cheap sandwich and a coffee and keep walking to work you know yeah so um, we'll have our bodega sandwiches on all day which is just like you know two eggs and american cheese two eggs bacon and cheese you know just your basic things you would get walking up to a corner store in the city, you know? Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> So those will be permanently on the menu all day and, and night as well. Um,
0: yeah. yeah. As a diehard lover of local restaurants wherever I roam, I see this a lot. A restaurant gets passed down to someone new, and no matter what they do, there is kicking and screaming from the old guard, the locals, the regulars. And in the case of Tasty, like so many others I've seen, it started before they were even open. Tell me about some of the uh, backlash you faced <laughs> taking over an institution like the Tasty Diner.
4: A lot. And it was nice. <laughs> now, you know, it's like, it's, it's really hard. You know, it's hard when you build something like when, when I make a restaurant, I'm not making some cookie cutter thing. It's always an extension of myself. So when I get attacked, it's like personally getting punched in the mouth. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, and, and that that being said, I responded to a lot of different people because you know I completely understand being like, "God damn! Well, I forgot we're on the right." You yet. can,
0: you can. I'll bleep it out.
4: Yeah. Being like, "God damn it! Where is my beautiful greasy spoon?" And and I get wanting that, but unfortunately, that's just not going to pay the bills in this area it hasn't been and it's not going to anymore and people do get like you know everybody you know certain people are like well just raise the prices of the greasy spoon food a lot of people will come here and see those prices on regular greasy spoon food and scoff you yeah. know so like and again like i wanted to like i i'm anytime i do something i'm i i'm Maybe it's conceit. I don't know. I have to put a piece of myself in it. Otherwise, I'm stealing something from someone else. Right. You know, like, I'm not, like, going to copy anyone else's work. I always have to put my own signature on it because, you know, just like anyone else in any other form of art, whether it's music, painting, whatever, you're always going to put your own stamp on something so that it's almost signed by you as as a piece of work you did, you know? Yeah. A lot of people love Tasty, but a lot of people weren't coming. You know, like, I, it's not like I didn't have access to the profit and loss statements. Right. <laughs> you know, like, I didn't just come in here like, fuck this shit. You know, I didn't just come in here like, hey, let's destroy this beautiful institution that's been working. And, you know, so that I, I definitely understand people that are like fussy that it's not the same. But it wasn't going to be. No, You know, you know it, de- it just happened to be me, the person that that changed it. You know,
0: it's the difference between like, do you want to still there or do you want it gone?
4: Right, exactly. Do you want it there but <laughs> yeah. different or
0: do you want it gone?
4: Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you know, and, was, and and to me it was like, how many restaurants last from 46 till now, even, you know, even if it's an insanely different iteration, I mean, that's still cool. And to me, just that name Tasty, it's like, I feel like it just deserves to have tribute paid to it, you know, it's like, just for lasting that long and feeding our community that long and so like, that's that's one thing I wanted is that like I wanted it to get some of that love and affection that upscale restaurants get a lot you know yeah. like it's because it, it was great as it was I'm not downplaying that I didn't dislike it at all it just like you know it, like I said monetarily that just wasn't working for it anymore and I still want it to get the love that it deserves you know what I'm saying and yeah. still be a part of our community and can be a part of our community I'd love to see it be a part of our community I mean, we're coming up on an 80-year anniversary. It'd be cool to make it 100. You know, we'll see. Yeah. If the world even makes it that long, but, you know, <laughs> here nor there.
0: <laughs> I mean, I know I've seen, like, on on Facebook people people giving it hell. Yeah. And uh, people coming at, at you for, for defiling the institution. Yeah. Um, but when you look at it, like, diners just aren't really even much of a thing
4: Right anymore there's only one left in town I know even Happy Hill's gone you know yeah. it's funny So <laughs> a couple people coming well I'll be I'm going just, to Happy Hill now I'm like well There's I'll...
0: technically two left in town sorry I forgot about the Met still is Oh too. we got
4: the Met we got Wins We got the
0: Met and, and
4: I mean I guess Wins is in Leicester but... Yeah yeah
0: and then five points but...
4: And five points yeah Yeah I mean again like it's all just a reflection of how much rent is in our area <laughs> you know like the, those types of things like yes they were able to be etched out of stone in the corners of New York City you right. know but we ain't living in New York City no <laughs> and like so the
0: volume is a little bit different as to how many people <laughs> pass through the Tasty Diner versus a
4: diner in New York City <laughs> yeah exactly and exactly. the last
0: time I went to Atlanta the prices were outrageous in diner foods it oh was yeah like dude I insane. went to that,
4: that one in the middle of god it's like it's right down in the middle of downtown it's like a Double yeah. triple story diner and the prices were nuts.
0: It was ridiculous. We right. we went to I forget the name of it, but it's like a Greek family diner, yeah. and like for just like an egg plate, like the eggs, bacon, toast, yeah. the regular breakfast plate, it was like $24. Yeah.
4: Believe that. And <laughs> I mean in like, the middle of downtown ridiculous. Atlanta rent, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you know, and that's that's that tough sell, and that's that decision that you make in your head. Like, are we gonna like drastically change concept? were we going to drastically change prices with kind of the same thing, which yeah would get you a ton of backlash too, you know? Um,
0: and I think the idea of a diner has kind of changed in a lot of ways too, as to like what people expect when they walk in. Right. Even if you look at like the mad, how they've changed things up, they yeah. still function like a diner, but yeah. the s- types of food have changed.
4: Well, I mean, but again, if you just look into the history of diners, you know, like on, living in Louisiana for years, so you go to a diner, there's going to be po'boys, etouffee, gumbo, which we have all three of on here, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, that that's, or meat and three type things. That's going to be your Louisiana diner, you know. Your northeastern right. diner is going to have that, like, epic menu of mostly frozen things, you know, which, again, I'm not doing. Or you get to the, like, highly Italian diners. You know, there's some diners I've been to. There's lasagna and yeah. cheese sticks and... You know, or there's I've been to like basically soul food diners, like fish camp diners, you know? Right. So like to me, a diner is a reflection of its owner and its community. And so that's what I kinda took to heart when I was playing like changing tasty around was just like what to me reflects myself and or West Asheville, you know? Yeah. And like what what when a comfy place for everybody to come and sit, and you know what I'm saying. Right. It's almost like a bar to me. That's why. That's why I'm out of the bar concept too. Because diners and bars, they're that like happy place. You come in there, you sit there, and you drink like three cups of coffee, hang out and chill. You know, or, or you know, bar. I'm gonna drink eight PBRs <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah.
1: So. Yeah. John talking to Tasty Diners Stephen Goff. We'll be back with more of their conversation in a bit. You're listening to The Dirty Spoon.
5: I need her Will she still be judged?
1: off, John was catching up with Stephen Goff. He recently took over the Tasty Diner, one of Asheville's longest-standing restaurants. Here's the rest of that conversation.
0: When you talk to Steve about any of his restaurants over the years, there's an understanding that he wants to be a part of a thriving community, not just blindly blasting through with his own ideas. And I think that largely comes from his own background, from being a cog in the wheel of larger restaurants. When he first came to Asheville, he was a train kid homeless and living on the street, when he took a job as a dishwasher. He was a line cook at Zambra before becoming a chef there. The owner of that establishment, Peter Slamp, offered to help Steve open a bar and restaurant of his own, the King James Public House, which, oddly enough, was located directly across the street from the parking lot where Steve slept when he first came to town.
4: I, I started cooking in my, when I was a teenager. I cooked in fast food restaurants and just you know, wherever, because I've had a criminal record since I was 14 years old. So, like, it's kind of where I had. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then, like, you know, the the more I worked in, ki- in restaurants, the more I kind of loved that, like, feel, you know, uh, uh, like that almost punk rock feel of a kitchen. Um, and then, <clears throat> you know, I, I got to Asheville. I was actually just passing through on freight train. And I got arrested at a protest at City County Plaza for a a right to marriage protest. It was that long ago. I mean, (laughs) thinking of the new Supreme Court, hopefully we're not having those again soon. Right, right. But, uh, and and so I ended up here, and and it was so funny because like, you know, with my child, the way I grew up and, and just how I lived my life, I always like thought of chefs as like, I don't know, just horrible, snobby, bougie. Like just, I was, you know, people would be like, hey, you work at a nice restaurant you should become a chef. And I was like, oh, never. Oh, that would be awful. That would be the worst job on earth. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, over time I fell in love with it. And then really, like, you know, I, I was the sous chef at Zombra for a long time. And then I had my first restaurant, King James. And that's when I really figured out that I could, like, kind of intertwine some of my political beliefs and some of, my, some of the, like like, feeding the homeless, taking care of the community. I was like, these are all part of running a restaurant. You know, like yeah. this is like totally shit that we should be doing as part of our regular running a restaurant life. Yeah, and uh, and then it was really on. You know, it was like, oh wow. So then I really like dug in deep and started like digging on. You know, local food and the history of food and the representation and you know just all of all of that kind of stuff. And you know, my first kitchen, I was like, I was a baby and you know a baby chef. And when I when I grew up, it was like Gordon Ramsay type of you know right yelly kitchens you know <laughs> and so like you know i'm i was not the best boss at that first restaurant but it was so good to walk away from that and think about like you know i'm all about sustainable ag i'm all about sustainable farming i'm all about not wasting any part of the animal or any part of the plant how am i not giving a sustainable work environment to my staff you yeah. know and that became like a key goal from then on you know so like what does that look like to you Uh, Always two days off in a row. Like, you know, if you're a full-timer, always two days off in a row. Here, I want to give five paid sick days for everyone. Um, Week paid vacation for, or nine days paid vacation for salaries. And then after a year, I want to do a paid vacation for hourly employees as well that have been with us for a year. I mean, right now I'm still setting up all this madness. right. And eventually I want a profit sharing program as well, you know, so that, you know. The some, longer someone some sticks per- with you, they right. make money with you. Yeah, they're, they're getting a, a piece of the profit that we're making. Uh, yeah. Also, you know, nobody in the kitchen makes less than 18. Um, I want to start my service staff off, I believe. I'm trying to decide somewhere between 7.25 and 8 an hour. I mean, that being said that when, when you once you pay them minimum wage and above, then you can take like I don't know, I was gonna take one to two percent of food sales, and tip that out to the kitchen, yeah. and the kitchen this this restaurant the kitchen's gonna be helping front of house for sure, right? Because we're it's just an oddly shaped beast, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like our bar. There's no way to wash glasses at the bar, so the kitchen will be running all the bar's glasses for them. You know, the food runner will be the dishwasher, whoever, one of us. Um... So uh, that's, I mean, that's what that looks like to me. And like, and like giving a shit about them. Like sometimes, you know, like anytime I've never had a staff member ask for to borrow money for something and me not do it. You know, right. I've also never had them like ask for a day with a rel- like with a decent amount of time ahead. And typically even without one. I want to say I've never said no to a day off even without a good lead time. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, I, you know, I understand life happens. This is not their life. They don't own this. Right. And that's what so many owners fail to understand is that right. they think every single person that works there should act like the owner. That's nice, and that is what I did when I was younger, but that's because I knew I wanted to be an owner. Yeah. So I should act like that now. So right. I'm used to it, you know. But, like, I don't expect that of, of all of my staff. I mean, obviously, my key employees and my managers, yes, I expect them to care. But even still, not like I do. Then, like, if somebody needs a day switched, I cover that shit. You right. know? i like, you know, worst case. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's nothing like crazy groundbreaking awesome. But it's, like... <laughs> I mean, I guess you would actually be surprised. <laughs> it's I just common sense. Up. Yeah. <laughs>
0: the common yeah. sense that is so often not applied in a restaurant department. <laughs> so I ate at this new tasty diner the other day, and I feel like I should say it as clearly as possible. This is not the same tasty diner as it used to be. To be fair, they're still just getting their legs under them, so they're only doing lunch and haven't been able to start the breakfast service yet, which Steve swears will be casual and low-key. So the menu currently plays out like a hybrid of a chefy lunch joint and a dive bar greasy spoon. There are burgers and chicken sandwiches, but there's also tomato panzanella tossed with fresh herbs. And fancier dishes than have ever been served in this building, despite the fact that every one of them falls below the $15 price tag there's also a sizable menu of vegetarian options. So uh, describe for me what Tasty Diner's menu used to be like and then we'll go and describe what it will be like now.
4: So I feel like, I feel like Tasty Diner's old menu was, it was a, a almost perfect iteration of like the southern burger style diner, you know, like a pile of burgers, dogs, grits, breakfast plates, I mean, it was it was a good like atypical diner, you know um, and the really most of what I, what I'm changing is just the you know our, we'll have a bunch of lunch sandwiches that are have I don't know I don't know how to say it like crazy chefy ingredients, but not even not even really. I mean we're just for one' I'm, the the old menu they actually didn't they actually they did awesome with their vegetarian side and I want to even take it up a notch further so we have a whole separate menu you know we have meaty handhelds veggie handhelds and I want at least 40% of the menu if not 50% to always be vegetarian vegan just because we're again I'm like trying to pay attention to my community like hey and I and I love I'm a huge meat guy but I love vegetarian food so I love you know I love that when it actually gets thought put into it you know like right. I love Laughing Seed does a great job, Plant does a great job. Lots Simple does a great job. Lots of places do a great job. But you have to know where they are, you know? And I guess this will be just like that too, you know? Because yeah. every one of our vegetarian vegan sandwiches is thought out. It's not just like, ah oh, shit, we need something vegetarian, you know? Right. It's like, you know, currently we have like a, a smoked carrot curry sandwich with Dare vegan Gouda on it and Marcona almonds. Herbs, arugula, sprouts—it's just like, it's like fat and meaty, but no meat. <laughs> you know? Right. And then you know, and I, I obviously I keep I keep on Impossible Burgs and the little the chicken patties, C-H-I-K-N, you know. For for people that don't mind getting the like that that kind of thing, they can still get the same feel, you know. Yeah. Uh, we got a hot chicken sandwich on a honey bun that I love. I mean, really, we kind of just went with Fat Boy Stoner food meats. <laughs> A chef. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the the big conundrums
0: that I always see in Asheville is, like, people, there is an expectation here of having things be living wage, of having things be farm-to-table, and, like, knowing where your food comes from and not just eating a bunch of Cisco crap. Right. There is an expectation of dealing with, like, local... Economy and like supporting local stuff as much as you can. Yeah, and then simultaneously people expect it to be like $8 for a sandwich
4: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean that's what and here's you know I, I actually have I did a lot of price comparisons from the old tasty menu to the new one what I could find online the old tasty burger the old tasty double smash patty was $8 and 50 cents with a side of fries for $4 which is $12 and 50 cents Ours is $13, which is 50 cents more. And it's, you know, and you're getting a big side of fries. And, I mean, yes, you have to get the side with it. But, I mean, obviously, you know, anytime anyone asks me something, I try to be the most hospitable. Like, we have had people come in. Can I have the breakfast bird? Of course. We got fried chicken, Texas toast, and pimento cheese and eggs. If you want old menu items and I have the things to make them, we will make them. You know? And... Yeah, and you know any other like, you know we're 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 good about mods, you yeah. know, and and making sure of taking care of people because to me again that goes back to like, what is more what's the most important thing in a restaurant and to me, yes food's up there but hospitality is key that's number one you know and yeah. that's when I, that's another reason I want a tasty those those I put the the diner stools back in there and it's so cool to like. I'm expoing right behind bar five and six, you know, which some people don't like because it's kind of loud, but like a lot of people have enjoyed like being a part of the kitchen with us, you right. know, like, and we talk to them the whole time. I sell them wine and stuff. We don't even have wine on the menu yet. I have it, but we just don't have space to pour wine because we're, because <laughs> the windows just getting crushed with orders. Right. So it's like, yeah, you know, they get, and then they get that extra like care and love, like, you know, talking to it. and. You know, I'm really happy with the staff that, that I've had forever, and they're so happy with each other it's really cool for people to get to see them be happy cooking. Right. You know, I had somebody the other day that was like, this is amazing, and I was like, well, it's really sandwiches. You know, they're like, <laughs> they're like no, what's amazing is that, like, you know, usually when, I, when I'm, like, watching an open kitchen and people cook, they don't look as happy as, like, like your team just looks really happy, and they're just having fun, and you can feel that vibe throughout the the dining room, you know? Yeah. Or the, you know, that front bar area. So, you know, again, that goes back to that that hospitality touch, you know? Just that, that feel. I mean, I'm a super hippie about any of that, though. Like, like anything that you're making is going to absorb your emotions. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? So, uh, I mean, and sometimes hate can taste pretty good. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, try to make sure that we're never... You know, that we're always happy while we're cooking and and that we care about everything. And everything that we touch actually has thought and love put into it. And even the environment we're all in, you know.
0: Yeah. I guess now is a good time to express my own personal connection to the Tasty Diner. I'm the fourth generation of people in my family to have eaten at that old diner. My grandfather used to take my grandmother there, I'm told. My father used to take me there as a kid, and when I started writing for the paper, I'd go there after all-nighters to have biscuits and gravy before bed. So I get what Steve Goff is doing here. He's taking over an institution that would have closed long ago in hopes of preserving that legacy, that name, that space. It's the idea of preserving a place that has been so long loved and adored and shifting it into a modern model that can survive the ever-evolving neighborhood in which it is anchored. So I feel like I already knew the answer to this question before I asked. It. Um, if there's all this hassle in taking over a restaurant, a legacy restaurant that's been around forever, why not just change the name?
4: You're going to get me. I don't I don't want to answer that one.
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> so, uh, for one, I just, I, I hadn't... I didn't think that it was gonna be that huge of a thing. You know, I mean, I think part of it is that we opened without breakfast. So, But I mean, I, I, I wanted to keep the name because I did want to keep some of the old tasty intact. You know, I did want to keep breakfast. I'm not a breakfast cook. That is not my jam at all. I mean, I, if you look at anything else I've done, it's always dinner and late night, you know? like <laughs> I am not a breakfasty type of guy, but I wanted it to maintain that history of itself, you know, and that, that like, I, we will have more affordable, like, walk-up things. I mean, affordable is a very relative term here in Asheville, but, you know, I did. I, I wanted to keep some of its, some of its love that's built into it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in retrospect, I, had, I thought about taking Diner out of the name and just saying, Tasty. You know, that's just what it is. Tasty, you know, but then it was just felt like a slap in the face to like the business that had been there. Which a lot of people think that I am slapping it in the face anyway. I guess like again, but like, yeah, yeah. It's almost a a, there is no win-win. There's no win on that. They ain't winning on that. And you know, if I had changed the name, I I would still.
0: Then tasty Diner wouldn't be around anymore.
4: Well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like yeah. an eighty year institution would no longer be there. And and it would be, you know, like you know, I'm immediately so it's funny when I opened Oxbar, people were like, Oh, Steve Goff cooks jock food now. And I'm like, Really? I don't think so, but whatever. And then and then when I when I got tasty, they're like, oh, $20 small plates is what it's going to be. I'm like, I can't win. I can't win. It doesn't matter what I cook. I'm going to get shit on for it. <laughs> you know? Like, you know, so, you know, when, when we do have dinner service, I am going to do small plates, you know? But again, i kind of wanted, I wanted to be a lot like Oxbar was, where the industry folks that work over here on Haywood Road can come in after work and get a PBR and a Berg, or some of the neighborhood people that want to have like a natural wine and a Crudo can do that as well, you know? Right. I mean, and, and all of these things do like reach back and to, I wanted them because they touch my personal history. You know, like I grew up hanging out in diners, drinking coffee, you know, I, that was my jam. I I grew up super blue collar. My burgers are a thing that I'm almost known for and yeah. things, you know, so, and wings, which I all thought were, you know, pretty dinery and, and approachable. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you can have fun at work, Wouldn't you?
1: (laughs) The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
6: Save a bit of power. You got 50,000 watts. In a big acoustic tower. Security's so tight tonight. Oh, they're ready for a tussle. Gotta keep your backstage passes. Cause your promoter has the muscle. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. But where it's going, no one knows. That's so it goes, that's so it goes, that's so it goes Where oh, it's going, no one knows In the tall buildings sit the head of all nations Worthy men from Spain and Siam All day discussions with the Russians, but they still went ahead and beat all the plans Now up jump the US representative, he's the one with the tight eyes 747 for him in that condition Flying back for my peacekeeping mission And so it goes, and so it goes, and so it goes, and so it goes But where it's going, no one knows And 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 so it goes, and so it goes, and so it goes, but where it's going, no one knows Some little skin tight vision O I she ain't mine, she is gnips, and so it goes, and so it goes, And so it goes, and so it goes. But where it's going, no one knows, and so it goes, and so it goes, so it goes, and so it goes, But where it's going, no one knows. But where
0: Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media.
1: All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton.
0: Music in this episode by Big Pig, Toledo, Ezra Furman, Tony Molina, Nick Lowe, Jordana, The Penguin Cafe Orchestra, Michael Price and Ryle Jones, Booker T and the MGs, and Sun Glitters. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing.
1: Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music.
0: And Catherine Campbell keeps the engines running behind the scenes.
1: Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume, right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVN. (laughs)